you were here last week, we started off with Adam and Eve. We're talking about how we can find Jesus in the Old Testament. How the Old Testament actually points to Jesus. And a lot of what I'm talking about today and this series has been inspired by a book that I recommended last week. I'm going to read some quotes from that book tonight. It's a book by David Limbaugh called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. It's actually called The Emmaus Road or Emmaus Code. And the subtitle is Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. So I kind of made a joke last week that every January 1st, you know, people will read the Bible and they only get so far. And so they get into Adam and Eve and then they get into Noah and that's typically where they drop off. So I think most people know this story, have heard this story, but today we're going to talk about Noah. So I want to pick up where we left off in Adam and Eve. Of course, you know the story. They eat the fruit, they sin, God kicks them out of the garden, and they go on to live their lives as best they can. So I'm going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, where they tell you what happened next. They tried to make a life. They got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they went out, and they started to do the best that they could. And it says here, Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. If you're unfamiliar with this story, Cain and Abel were their first sons. And of course, Cain killed Abel, and Cain was cursed. And so having lost one child, uh, Adam and Eve, they did what came naturally. They had sexual relations with his wife again. She gave birth to another son, and she named him Seth. For she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. And when Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. So, Adam and Eve had kids, and they began to populate the planet. And a short time later, kind of fast forwarding a little bit to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. What happened? Well, we had a lot of people, and people started doing things that God did not approve of. People started to sin. People started to go their own way. People started to live their lives in a way that was displeasing to God, which God considered to be wicked. And so to deal with this wickedness, God had a plan. Genesis 6, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth, and it broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry that I ever made them. Think about that for one second. God created this perfect place, the Garden of Eden. He had Adam and Eve who had every opportunity to do things the way that God designed it. They had every opportunity to do things the way that God planned it. And they ended up falling into temptation. They ended up eating the forbidden fruit, the fruit from the forbidden tree. They sinned, and they were kicked out of the garden. So now a few generations later, God's looking at the people that have populated the planet. And he says, look at all this wickedness. I'm sorry that I ever made them. That's hard. Imagine that what you have done disappoints God so much that he's sorry that he ever made you. That's a tough thing to hear. I think it's a tough thing to even think about, like, man, would God ever be sorry that he made me? As we keep going, you understand, you probably heard the story before, God sends rain, 
and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and it wipes out everybody on the planet except for Noah, his family, and a few select animals that made it onto the ark. We're not going to go through all the Noah stuff today. The, the message and the takeaway from this part of the Bible, in my opinion, is not the story of Noah, but it's God's promise after Noah. God's promise, not just to Noah and his family, but God's promise to generation after generation after generation beyond Noah. So as I skip ahead, I want you to think about that for one second. God says these people are wicked. I'm sorry I ever made them. He wipes them off the face of the earth. He's disappointed. He's frustrated. He gets rid of them, and he essentially starts over. You ever have an Etch-a-Sketch where you start to do something real cool in the Etch-a-Sketch, and then you mess up? And you go the wrong way, so now your beautiful creation is, is tainted and it doesn't look the same. So what do you do? You shake it. Depending on how frustrated you are with how the Etch-a-Sketch went, you might shake it a little bit harder. <laughs> I feel like God had made his, his perfect design, and we messed it up. And so he decided to shake the Etch-a-Sketch. But he preserved Noah because Noah was declared righteous. In a sea of wickedness, and a sea of horrible sin and, and, and disappointing wickedness, God says, Noah, you're okay. Noah, I'm going to protect you. Noah, I'm going to save you from my wrath. I'm going to put you on this ark and we're going to be all right. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 15 through 17, after all the rain, then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. We keep going down in verse 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. So after God destroys the planet, he looks at the righteous people that were chosen and protected and selected, and he says, man, they got it right. They made, it, they made it happen. They got off the ark and they presented this sacrifice and it's pleasing to me. What they're doing is pleasing to me. I'm not going to destroy them again. I, have a, I won't do that again. I have a better plan. And then chapter 9, verse 7, God tells them what? Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Now remember, the earth is decimated, right? There's nobody in this uh, left except Noah's family. So what do they have to do? They have to be fruitful and multiply, which sounds familiar because back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. So essentially what we have here is a do-over. We started, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, Rule over the animals, work the land, here's your job, here's your identity, do it right. They messed up. So God shakes the Etch-a-Sketch and he starts over and he tells them the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Genesis 9, 7 through 17, God says, be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, 
the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds. And I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. And then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is the sign of the covenant that I am confirming with all the creatures on earth. So what is a covenant? God says he's confirming his covenant. This is the sign of my covenant. Covenant, 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 covenant. What is a covenant? Last week we talked about the Edenic covenant. The covenant that related to what happened in Eden. We didn't talk about what covenants are, but I want to tackle that tonight. See, that last part is kind of important. What does Noah have to do? Nothing. We're going to talk about a lot of different covenants. We're going to talk about the Edenic covenant, the Noahic Noahic covenant, I guess. Um, The covenant with Abraham, covenant with King David and with the Israelites. There's a lot of different covenants that we'll talk about throughout this series, but... What exactly is a covenant? The video said it's a partnership. Actually, the author, David Limbaugh, he says it like this. God's series of covenants with man is the means by which he works out his sovereign plan for man's redemption. I'm going to say that again. God's series of covenants with man, with us, is the means by which he works out his sovereign plan for man's redemption, for our redemption. The term covenant generally means a binding agreement. A binding commitment agreed upon through negotiations between two or more uh, autonomous partners. So Shane and I could enter a covenant because he is his own man. I am my own man. We can say, let's do this partnership. This is what I expect of you. This is what you expect of me. Let's make a deal. And that covenant is a binding agreement. The word agreement and covenant are kind of interchangeable, but covenant is is more formal. I think covenant is a little bit more serious. It's more binding. Another word is testament. The word testament means agreement, and it can also be translated as covenant. So when you look at the Bible, and it's divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you've got the old agreement and the new agreement. You've got the old covenant and the new covenant. So there's two different agreements that we look at when we look at the Bible as a whole. Now, I just want to point something out. This is kind of fun, but if you ever want to know... (laughs) If you ever forget how many books are in the Bible, if you ever have a question, there's a cool way to remember. Old Testament. Go ahead, Shane. The Old Testament, old, three letters. Testament, nine letters. So together, there's 39 letters in the Old Testament. There's 39 books of the Old Testament. That's one way to remember. Old, three letters, Testament, nine letters, 39. I thought this was cool. But then you say, Chris, what about the New Testament? New Testament has three letters. The word new has the same number of letters. Well, instead of three and nine, and there being 39 books of the New Testament, what you do is you multiply. Three times nine is 27. So total together, 39 plus 27 is 66. I don't know why I felt like including that. I just thought that was cool. I learned that in school, and I was like, wow, that's pretty neat. So 39 in the first 
agreement, 39 in the first covenant, then 27 in the second covenant. But there are a number of covenants that we're going to cover in the Old Testament. God and Noah, God and Abraham, God and the Israelites, God and David. And every biblical covenant culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The obligations of both God and man all point to Christ. What do I mean by that? If every biblical covenant culminates in the personhood and the work of Jesus Christ, how does the Noah story point to Jesus Christ? How do the obligations of God and man in these different covenants point to Jesus Christ? Well, let me ask you this. If God has promised not to destroy, then we can safely assume that he has another plan for our redemption. The whole Bible is the story, as we talked about last week, the big God story of God who created this perfect creation, trying to reconcile his people and his design and bring us back to this perfect creation. So you can look from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and you see that there's this process of God trying to bring us back into right standing, trying to redeem us throughout this process. So the question is, if God has a plan to redeem us, and he doesn't intend to destroy us, and he doesn't intend to destroy the earth, then what must the plan be to redeem us? If we're wicked and fallen and depraved, and we need, uh, uh, we can never hold up our end of the bargain, as they say, We're incapable of holding up our end of the bargain as we talked about last week. Then we need a holy and righteous and perfect sinless savior to redeem us. So if we look at it from this perspective and say each one of these covenants are pointing to Jesus. The agreement between God and between man is pointing us back to Jesus. And we look at the Noah story not as a story of animals, not as a story of a flood, but as a story of a promise. A story about a covenant We can see, I believe, God's plan of redemption at work. And let me explain this. When God is party to a covenant with man, he defines the obligations on both sides because he is sovereign. What do I mean by that? If you're going to enter into an agreement with God, just like I said, Shane and I can enter into an agreement and Shane will say what he desires and I can say what I desire. And at the end of that discussion, we can come to a mutual agreement, mutual terms. But when you enter a covenant with God, God, who is sovereign over all things, tells you what the deal is. God tells you what's expected of you. God tells you how to hold up your end of the bargain. In God's commitments, his covenants are generally in the form of his promises, his blessings, his curses. God tells you what the terms are. And if God is dictating the terms, then you have to believe that God has a plan. If God is telling you what it takes to hold up your end of the bargain, you better believe that he's going to hold up his end of the bargain. A covenant, this is the quote from the book, is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. By Wayne Grudem. Unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of that relationship. So what are the terms of this Noahic covenant? What are the terms of this agreement between God and Noah? God promises he's not going to destroy the earth. God promises he's not going to bring any more floods. God says you'll see a sign of my promise and my covenant. But what is Noah supposed to do? And at the end of that video, it kind of got caught up there, but it says he has to do nothing. 
Noah doesn't have any work to do to be safe from God's wrath. Noah doesn't have any work to do to be safe from God destroying because God says, I see that this isn't the way. I see that wiping everyone off the face of the earth is not going to work. Not that God is wrong. I don't want to say that. But God has looked at his creation and he's seen us go our own way. And now he's created more. And they've all gone their own way. So God's saying, look, they're not choosing to follow me. They can't do it by themselves. They can't do it by themselves. So we have to have, God says, I have to have a different plan to redeem these people. So if you want to know what happens next, you have to go to Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 through 27. This is what Noah does after they get off the ark. And it says, after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and he planted a vineyard. And one day he drank some wine that he had made and he became drunk and he lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. And then Shem and Japheth took a robe and held it over their shoulders and walked backwards. They backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. And when Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. And then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest servants to his relatives. And then Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed. And may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth. And may Japheth... Share the prosperity of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. Who is Shem? We know he's a son of Noah, but why is he important? Noah speaks prophetically, may God curse these guys and bless these guys. Because of the way you reacted, you're cursed and you're going to serve these two. Japheth and Shem, you're good to go. Canaan, mm -mm -mm, you're not good to go. Who is Shem? And why is he important? There's a quote by Gerard Van Groningen, again from the book. Shem is to be the specific channel through which the Lord is to work out his restoration program. He is to provide the eventual royal agent of redemption, a Hebrew, a descendant of the Semites, Jesus. Shem is an ancestor to Jesus. So when they get off the ark and they go back to life, they go back to living their life. We've got Japheth, we've got Shem, and we've got Canaan. We know what happens to Canaan. You guys have all heard about the land of Canaan and the Canaanites. But Shem is the father of the Semites, also known as the Jews, also known as the Hebrews. So why is Shem important? Because God just got through saying, I'm not going to destroy the earth I'm not going to wipe you off the face of the earth. I have another plan. You guys can't do it by yourself. You need a savior. And the plan's already in motion because the ancestor to that savior is right there. John 4, 22, Jesus says, for salvation comes through the Jews. Shem is the father of the Jews. The Shemites become Semites. Shem is the father of the Hebrews. He's also the ancestor to Abram, who we're going to talk about next week. If you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 36 and 38, it gives a, a, a genealogy of Jesus, tracing all the way back to Adam. When we get down to this area, uh, verse 36, it says, Shelah, Shelah, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, was the son of Canaan. Canaan was the son of Arpahad. 
Arpahad was the son of Shem. Shem was the son of Noah. Noah was the son of Lamech, so on and so forth. Kenan was the son of Enosh. Enosh was the son of Seth. Seth was the son of Adam. Adam was the son of God. If we trace the lineage from Adam all the way to Jesus, we can see this ancestry. We can see this path. We can see this road to redemption that's built through the descendants of Noah. That's built through the descendants of Abraham. That's built through the descendants of David. So even back when God was destroying everything, he had a plan for redemption. And his name is Jesus. God revealed himself and his grand plan for the full and complete restoration of the cosmos and fallen royal mankind. This is the quote. Indeed, as Noah prophesied the word of the Lord, he also confessed it as a glorious, life-giving, covenant-maintaining, and kingdom-restoring word of God. It's a little bit wordy. What do I mean by that? God revealed himself, his essence, his personality, and his grand plan for our complete restoration. And when he spoke the prophecy, when he spoke the words into existence that Japheth and that Shem would be blessed and that Canaan would be cursed, he said, you will grow, you will be blessed, you will be great, you, not so much. And from the people that Noah blessed comes Abram, from Abram comes David, from David comes Jesus. So when I think about Noah, even though you get these questions, I don't know if you've ever had this question from people who maybe aren't Christians or who don't go to church, one of the most popular questions I get from non-believers is, do you really think every animal was on the ark? Do you really think every animal could have been on the ark? What about the pandas? What about the polar bears? Any cold? And all these logistical questions. I'm not interested in debating the logistics of the ark. I'm not, the, the details don't interest me. What interests me is the promise. What interests me is the promise that God is not going to destroy but redeem. And on that ark was an ancestor to the person who was designed and, and planned and called to be our redeemer. Last week we talked about creation and how God was creating the very world that he was going to redeem. How he made the hill that he was going to die on. How he made the wood that was going to be his cross. That God knew how this plan was going to play out and yet he did it anyway. God knew from the beginning that this is how it was going to go. So even when we messed up and got kicked out of the garden, even when we messed up and got destroyed in the flood, God had a plan for redemption. Ben, you can come on up. Jesus was a descendant of Shem, as was Abraham, as was David, as was everyone else written in the genealogy of Jesus. So I know this week... Maybe you don't see yourself in the Noah story. Maybe you're not sure how you fit into the Noah story. I can tell you this. You deserved punishment. You deserve punishment. You deserve to be destroyed. You deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. But God didn't want to do that. He had a plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption is Jesus Christ. So if you look at the, uh, the rainbow, which is a promise from God's covenant that he won't destroy... I don't think of it as so much a promise that he won't destroy, but a promise that God had a plan that he was going to send a savior. That God had a plan and he had and he executed this plan to redeem us, not to destroy us. So this week I want you to recognize that you're living in God's plan and in his story. Because God has promised not to destroy, we have to know that he had a plan to redeem. 
And we know who that plan was. God knew we wouldn't be able to keep our end of the bargain. He knew that we would sin just like Adam and Eve did. He knew that we would be wicked just like the people that were destroyed in the flood. And so he sent us a savior, someone who could fulfill the requirements of of the Edenic covenant that we talked about last week. Someone that could be obedient, someone that could live a life that was pleasing and glorifying to him as a sacrifice to die for our sins. Number two, I want you to remember that God's plan was not to destroy, but to save. I think a lot of times we get caught up in the destruction of the flood and not in the salvation of the flood. God's plan was not to destroy, but to save. And then the last thing I want you to think about and focus on and do this week is to put your hope and your faith and your trust in that Savior. We are so imperfect, but we serve a perfect God who had a perfect plan who lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice for our sins so that we might live. So even when you read the Old Testament, if you're one of those people that started every January and you get stuck in the flood and you go, man, how did every animal fit on there? You're missing the point. The point is what we deserve is destruction. But what we get is redemption. We deserve destruction, but we are promised redemption and salvation and a future. So we're going to sing one more song. 